Hello and welcome to the QI Chatroom podcast, where we bring you the latest in health topics. I'm your host, Max Perret. This podcast is brought to you by Aliados Health, formerly known as the Redwood Community Health Coalition. You can learn more about us at aliadoshealth.org. Okay, well, welcome, everyone. We could probably go ahead and start. Glad that everyone was able to join us today. We're here to talk about the work that First 5 Contra Costa has been leading in Contra Costa County. First 5 Contra Costa leads Contra Costa County's local implementation of Help Me Grow, which is a care coordination system used nationally to connect children to the early screening and community services that they need to thrive. Healthcare providers can refer children zero to five to help me grow for additional community services that address needs identified by screens for child development concerns. As knowledge grew about the impact of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, on child development, First Five Contra Costa, the Contra Costa Crisis Center, and La Clinica de la Raza came together to develop a pilot to integrate ACE screening and response workflows utilizing the existing Help Me Grow model. La Clinica is an FQHC, a federally qualified health center, with multiple community clinics within Alameda, Solano, and Contra Costa counties. La Clinica strives to provide culturally appropriate, high-quality, accessible health care for all. The Pittsburgh site is a family practice clinic, which cares for about 5,000 patients. About 90% of La Clinica's Pittsburgh patients have Medi-Cal, and roughly 60% are Spanish-speaking. Barbara Batella is a pediatrician at La Clinica in Pittsburgh, California. She worked as a pediatric nephrologist for many years, but now loves working as a general pediatrician. She started Universal ACEs screenings about five years ago. She was the provider champion for the recent ACEs AWARE grant. First Five Contra Costa works to ensure young children are healthy, ready to learn, and supported in safe, nurturing families and communities. They invest in policies, programs, and capacity building to change systems that support families and children during the first five years the most important time in children's development. Over the last two decades, First Five Contra Costa has been focused on building and improving systems to eradicate inequities, using tools and approaches that are effective, and replicating what works. This has led First Five to pursue a blend of funding, partnership, and policy solutions that change systems to meet the needs of young children and their families. Wanda Davis works for the Contra Costa First Five Children and Families Commission as the Early Intervention Program Officer. She is responsible for overseeing the Early Intervention Initiative, which houses First Five's trauma-informed systems work, and oversaw the management of their two rounds of ACEs Aware grants. She launched their early identification and resource referral system known as Help Me Grow, connecting these efforts to pediatric serving sites within Contra Costa County. And Emily Hampshire is the Trauma and Resiliency Coordinator, who works for the First Five Commission for Children and Families. Emily joined the First Five Contra Costa team in 2021 to coordinate the ACEs Aware grant projects and manages the Contra Costa Network of Care, which is an online space where providers across Contra Costa County can learn, connect, network, and share regarding their integration of trauma-informed, healing-centered principles and practices into their work. Emily has deep roots in the Contra Costa social services field and is eager to promote the prevention and treatment of adverse childhood experiences and trauma across the county's early childhood sector. Liliana Gonzalez Sanchez works for the First Five Commission for Children and Families as the Help Me Grow program coordinator. Help Me Grow Contra Costa is a coordinated system of care and early identification for children ages zero to five who may be at risk of developmental or behavioral delays. 
The model provides a central access point of care coordination that provides parents one-on-one resource navigation and connection support to ensure development concerns are addressed as early as possible. Through rigorous health service provider outreach and developmental screening promotion, Help Me Grow helps to identify children and connect them to services as early as possible. With an extensive background in the field of early intervention and early childhood education, Liliana has supported the implementation of the Help Me Grow model in Contra Costa County for the last six and a half years. And the Contra Costa Crisis Center, which runs 211 for Contra Costa County, manages a database of over 1,600 regularly updated community-based resources, representing over 650 community-based organizations throughout the county. The Crisis Center's call center averages 70,000 calls per year. As part of the current partnership, First Five Contra Costa works with the Crisis Center to ensure the early childhood resources in the database are comprehensive and updated regularly. Pertinent to today's podcast, the Crisis Center receives funding from First Five to house the phone line for Help Me Grow Contra Costa. Our first question um, is directed to Wanda. And Wanda, if you could just please talk about how your partnership was initiated and what problems you were trying to address through the initiative. Thank you, Beth. As you said, First Five is really focused on prevention, and we take a two-generational approach to really work with families to help them to provide wellness for their young children. When we initially started this, we were very excited about the work that was being done by the first Surgeon General of California, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. And her work in identifying and addressing trauma and toxic stress was the impetus for us to to become really active in this area. What we did was we developed a fellowship for young early childhood providers. Um, This led led to us developing a trauma resiliency fellowship training for early childhood providers to bring attention to the impact on trauma and ACEs on young children. So when this ACEs Aware Grant became available, we were very excited to get started and to be able to bring, it allowed us to bring together a group of all of our community cross-sector our health providers, our social service agencies, to come together and think about what do we need to be able to implement ACEs screening in our community. And what we heard at first was people were really worried, were really concerned about doing that. They were worried about, you know, what to do if the screening came back, what would it would reveal. They were worried about screening itself. They were worried about that there would be too many needs and too little resources. They were worried about where they would go. So the second grant really gave us the opportunity to identify those issues and to see if we could create a system that could address them. And so we said, let's pilot uh, with our two partners, which was La Clinica and the Crisis Center, to see what we could do to be that was achievable and sustainable. And it also allowed us to think about how we could build a bi-directional communication system between our systems to make it easier uh, for folks in the work. Barbara? Thanks, Wanda. Uh, Prior to entering into this partnership, we had been doing ACEs screening for about two years. So we already had our flow going. That was all good. But we clearly had areas where we needed to evolve, starting with the really fundamental issue of how do you even define trauma? We were using the Pearl screener as our ACEs screen. And while it's a wonderful starting point, we didn't feel that it really adequately captured the traumas of systemic racism, xenophobia, extreme poverty that a lot of our families were facing. 
And then superimposed on that, we had the wave of the pandemic coming in. And again, our population was particularly uh, severely impacted by that. So as we broadened up this definition of what trauma is, we realized that a lot of our families, virtually all of them, were struggling with significant psychosocial stressors. So how could we, as this little tiny clinic, and I cannot say little strongly enough, I'm the only pediatrician here, um, how do we address all of these needs? And in fact, what do all these families need and what do they even want in terms of supports? So we really look to the partnership to help us with those issues. In addition, we needed help with our most vulnerable group, and those are the toddlers that are already manifesting evidence of toxic stress. So when we think about toxic stress in adults, we think about anxiety, depression, obesity, diabetes, hypertension. But toxic stress in little kids actually looks different. There you see learning disabilities, developmental delays, behavioral issues, ADHD, with a little mix of poorly controlled asthma and obesity thrown in as well. We don't even have the ability to provide play therapy within our clinic or any of the other services that those children needed. And we definitely needed a way to really efficiently refer those children out to community resources. In addition to those two things, we had two kind of pie-in-the-sky ideas of what we wanted to do with this partnership. One of them was understanding that so many of our families were struggling with psychosocial stressors. Were there ways that we could provide protective factors to keep those families from developing toxic stress? In other words, how can we make our families more resilient? The other part that we really wanted to try to address was, is there any way we can decrease the risk of ACEs happening in the first place? So with all those lofty ideas, we entered into the partnership. Great. Thanks so much. We were also lucky enough at Aliados Health to have First Five help us to develop a promising practice around this work. Emily, can you give us an overview of the work that was described in the promising practice, enhancing ACE screening through Help Me Grow Care Coordination? Absolutely. Um, thanks to Wanda and Barbara for giving us the, the context on how our partnership came together. So I'm happy to give kind of a broad overview of the workflows and components of the pilot project. So our task, again, was to implement ACE screening and response protocols within La Clinica by creating and augmenting and sustaining our formal connections between Help Me Grow and the clinic in order to effectively address toxic stress in both children and adults through both the clinical and community interventions. So we had to think very intentionally through every step of our workflows, um, everything from introducing ACEs to parents and caregivers to making the referrals outside the clinic via Help Me Grow or HMG, enabling those closed feedback loops in the referral process. So what do those steps look like? So kind of the flow in our project was first, the parent or caregiver learns about ACEs in the clinic where children and parents or caregivers are screened. The provider then, based on the results and discussion, completes a referral to Help Me Grow. And referrals to Help Me Grow might be triggered by a developmental screening, an ACE screen of either parent or child, the parent or child's ACE score, or simply an express need for support around basic needs and building resilience. So through a provider-driven process, um, we actually created a wellness packet and resiliency checklist that we'll talk more about that providers could use to support um, the parent's involvement in their and their child's own treatment planning, self-identifying their goals and priorities in that referral. 
Within the project, we automated the referral so that it lands at the call center at the crisis center and help me grow automatically, where the care coordinator there can pick up that referral and initiate contact with the parent or caregiver within 48 hours is when they would reach out. Um, more specifically for folks who are interested, the referral is created at the clinic via a smart phrase in Ocean Epic EHR and exported via secure file transfer protocol or FTP and subsequently imported into the crisis center's database platform called ServicePoint from vendor WellSky. So once the Help Me Grow Care Coordinator and Family Connect, they can together discuss ACE screening results and any immediate needs or concerns. Uh, the parent and caregiver throughout this and other calls will receive information and referrals to community resources. And the care coordinator establishes routine check-ins uh, with the family to assess resource connection and address any barriers or challenges that may arise. What's great is through the automation of the referral process in our pilot, updates about each referred client are rapidly available to providers back at the clinic and their whole care teams as needed uh, through logging into a unique secure node or portal entry into the call center's service point uh, care coordination platform, where the care coordinators are documenting ongoing client outcomes and updates. So really briefly, just wanted to really emphasize that before and during the pilot process, all of our partners embarked on customized training and role-specific coaching to support our cross-system implementation of these trauma-informed principles. That was key to laying our necessary groundwork and common language for the work. And then secondly, we did want to emphasize, because um, we know it may be of interest to folks, the, the use of the smart phrase in La Clinica's Ocean Epic platform. The smart phrase was set up by La Clinica's IT department to auto-populate with demographics, ACE scores, ASQ results, MCHATs. All the physician has to do is check off what they want to highlight for that referral, whether that's developmental playgroups that they want the family to access or other material and basic needs. All that's easily listed and can just be checked off by the physician where the smart phrase then triggers the report, goes through the FTP to the crisis center. And back after documenting the progress, Lexinica providers then um, can sign in via service point to directly access those updates and often found that they would use the morning care team huddles with support from medical assistant staff to efficiently go in and check the, the status of those workflows. So we were glad to use technology to create as seamless as possible of a bi-directional process that allows for that automated closed loop communication that really eases the bandwidth and capacity needs of the busy clinic. Wow, thanks. It's really great information. I have a follow-up question for Dr. Batello. Beyond the promising practice document, what other key highlights do you want to share about the project? Well, Emily touched on some of these already, but I wanted to go back to our two pie-in-the-sky ideas for this grant and sort of focus a bit more on those, specifically improving resilience for our families and trying to decrease the incidence of ACEs. We really used a whole family wellness approach, which is really integral to the first five model anyway, but we specifically focus on trying to interrupt intergenerational ACEs. And the way that we did that was really trying to support the parents. What we did is we started doing ACEs screening for parents, talked about their own childhood experiences, and most importantly, how they were able to overcome those early childhood adversities and really uh, kind of define for them their own resilience at a baseline. We uh, identified toxic stress if it was present and started getting treatment uh, for parents as needed. 
then we really wanted to kind of look on how we could enhance parental resilience and the whole family resilience. And as was alluded to previously, we really leaned into the protective factors, uh, those stress mitigation strategies that were defined by Dr. Nadine Burks-Harris and her roadmap to resilience. And just to remind everybody of those, it includes exercise, nutrition, sleep, access to nature, relationships, mental health, and mindfulness. And I think that all of us have been to the doctor and been told, you know, you should exercise more and you should eat more fruits and vegetables. So rather than taking so much that approach of this is what you should be doing, it was much more, hey, come and do this with us. And I'll explain how we got to that particular part in a second. One thing that we did to support these different uh, stress mitigation strategies is first five put together these beautiful wellness bags to give to the families. And those uh, included a variety of things that would support stress mitigation strategies, such as a yoga mat and poster, little potted plants, a cookbook, those sorts of things. One of the things that I thought was the coolest that we created as part of this partnership was working with 211 to link community resources with these stress mitigation strategies. So, for example, Zumba classes would be linked to the exercise. Food bank information would be uh, linked to nutrition so that Once those linkages were in place, we created a form for parents that, again, Emily mentioned briefly, that had all the stress mitigation strategies listed, and then under each one would be community offerings that are available to them. After that, the families would just check off one of three boxes, either, yes, this sounds great, I'm really interested in this, or, hey, I'm already doing great, or I'm not interested in learning more about this. Any of the families that suggested they wanted support in those areas, we would then use that help me grow smart phrase within our computer system uh, and would just check off whichever resiliency support that the parents said that they were interested in. Circling back over to the whole family wellness and specifically thinking about the child, we really wanted to emphasize resiliency for the child as well. And probably the most important resiliency factor for toddlers is that parent-child relationship. We really empowered families by saying, hey, you know, one thing that we all learned from the pandemic, we cannot control what stressors the world throws at us, but having a close relationship with your child is the best way to protect them against toxic stress. So um, we did that conversation, but also uh, we emphasized positive childhood experiences. We provided toy bags for children at all their well-child visits that included developmentally appropriate toys. First Five did a beautiful write-up of how to interact with the child using those toys and books that we provided uh, and talk to families about how playing was one of the best ways for children to learn. Um, and also, actually, even maybe more important than that, fostered those warm memories for the children with their parents and vice versa and really built that relationship in a strong way. So that that was uh, kind of the additional parts that I wanted to highlight. Great. Thank you. What were some of the greatest challenges that you faced while you were planning and implementing the work? And what were some of the key lessons that you learned from the work? I think that any pediatrician or family practice doctor working within an FQHC is probably raising their hand with challenges that that they can think of with this project. We have 15 to 20 minutes to see all of our kids. And um, even before ACEs screening came on board, 
we were really pressed to address everything that needed to be addressed within that visit. When you talk about ACEs screening, you're not just talking about a screener. You're talking about a follow-up, potentially very difficult, very emotionally, potentially triggering conversation for the provider um, that can be time-intensive and, as I mentioned, kind of uncomfortable. So I think what I was hearing in terms of pushback was, you know, we are ready pressed to the max. It's kind of soul-crushing to think about doing an additional piece of work. So there was that part of it. And then also the expression that we're not really trained as providers to do this. We're not therapists. We never learned how to do this in medical school. And true that, we did not learn how to do this in medical school. But certainly as doctors, we've had a lot of experience having difficult conversations and trying to Uh, kind of shift the narrative a little bit to, let's say, a little three-year-old that you're worried about, you do testing for, and you find a very difficult medical diagnosis, whether it's leukemia or renal failure or an autoimmune disease. What follows that diagnosis is that internal feeling of, wow, that's really terrible, but thank goodness we caught this, followed by a very difficult emotional conversation with the family, and then the let's refer you to someone who can take care of you best. And I kind of tried to reframe ACEs screening in that same light. Thank goodness we found this. Allow that difficult conversation to happen, and let's refer you to somebody who can help you the best. I'm going to say it was a very tough activation energy, not to trigger everybody's high school chemistry, PTSD, but uh, a high activation energy, getting everybody on board. But I'm going to say most doctors who actually started doing it and incorporating it very quickly bought into it. So that's what I would say. And if I could hand it off to Wanda to talk about challenges. I think some of, for us, some of the challenges in just organizing the pilot itself was really putting together a, um, accountability structure. What we found was that if we didn't have an accountability structure in place and somebody holding the work, and that was really what First Five deal was in this uh, grant, was to really hold us accountable in the work by having really clear decision-making lines. We found that if we didn't have decision-making lines in terms of how we were going to implement the IT stuff and who would be the decision-maker when things got stuck, or if there was a challenge in terms of the organization just uh, staying on track, because Many of these organizations ourselves, and particularly the health system, has a lot of demands. So we really wanted to make sure that those demands, uh, in those taking care of those demands, we did not lose sight of what we were trying to do in this pilot. So having a sense of a leadership structure that allowed us to essentially to get unstuck at any level of the organizational structure across all three was really paramount. We had our executive team met monthly. We had a, our own leadership structure within the grant meeting weekly. We had some work groups that were also involved and were helping to move forward specific things like how do we implement the connection between Help Me Grow, the crisis center, and the health system? How do we put that IT system in place? So it was really important for us to have that kind of leadership structure to move, continue to move the work forward. We, it may sound like daunting in some sense that we had all of these meetings, but those meetings in terms of the infrastructure you know, when you're setting something up and starting a new system, it just takes time. And having us all be committed to that time was really, uh, really beneficial to our team. I think the other thing was just alignment, 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 having ourselves aligned and understanding of what is toxic stress, having ourselves committed and understanding uh, what is trauma-informed practices, being able to have shared conversations around difficult topics, like where we got stuck and not having any 
blaming, but just really having an open communication system was also key in this in our uh, ability to be able to move this work forward. Also understanding just the stakeholders at all levels. We knew it was important. You know, sometimes you think about things from the top down and you forget that it's not the top that's really generating the work, it's the bottom. So being able to have conversations and input from the medical assistants, being able to think about uh, the two uh, Help Me Grow coordinators who were in the work and what how it was impacting them, making sure along all of those levels that we attended to everybody in the work. So those were, I would think, are some of the greatest challenges and also our greatest successes in being able to like, make that happen. Great. Could you talk a little bit about what kind of impact has the work and your partnership had on the community and what are some of the key successes? Yeah, I think one key success was what Barbara was mentioning earlier was just the changing of culture and the way that we were thinking about things, really focusing on resiliency. Not just a problem, you know, that we have to solve that is more of a kind of blame kind of thing. Like here you are, you know, we're t- talking to people about really difficult conversations around what ACEs, what ACEs are and what ACEs are with them within their own system and within their own selves and making sure that we were uh, really attending to not only what was wrong, but what was right. So I think that was one of the things that we learned, just creating that shared understanding. And then another thing was just the strength and the coordination of our working relationships. We really were able to have a strong working relationship by those communication channels that we established and also by just all of our commitment and the work. I must say that the three organizations that were involved, nobody had an ego. Everybody shared really um, willingly our resources, our expertise, and each member, other member received that. So I think that was important um, that we were able to do. Another impact would be uh, just the collective impact of our work in general, being able to really demonstrate to our community that this was doable. Now I'll turn it over to Barbara. I am going to echo that I think one of the huge successes of this has been a culture shift within primary care and that deep understanding that stress impacts almost all aspects of our medical care, everything from, as I alluded to previously, learning disabilities and developmental delay, asthma, obesity, medication compliance, and that understanding that if you don't address the underlying stress, medical management is going to be less effective than it would have been otherwise. And the humbling part of this uh, as a doctor is that we it's super important to start that conversation about stress within the exam room, but the fact of the matter is you cannot fully address that stress by yourself within the four walls of our clinic. For that, you really need a community of resources, and having to reach out and having good uh, connections with the outside resources is super important to your patient care. And Emily, what do you have to add to this? Yeah, another key impact and success I would add was the creation of as seamless as possible of a bi-directional process that that allowed for that automated closed-loop communication that really made things easier for providers in making referrals and then checking the results of those referrals, um, since that helped us address the, the bandwidth and capacity concerns of the clinic via an effective and efficient use of the technology tools we had accessible to us. What are things looking like now that I've uh, been moving along? What's been sustained post-pilot and uh, post-funding? I'll start us off. I would say that uh, one of the things that we've been able to do is because we built on existing structures. Like Help Me Grow was already in our community. It wasn't something new that we had to start up. It was something that was already successfully connected to our pediatrician system of care. 
and they was well known in our community. So that was helpful. Um, and it was built within our 211 system, which is houses different resources. We are still able to code those resources to stress busters as new ones come online. So it's a really continuing to do that has been a really easy fit, easy for us to do. We also were able to shift some of our funding that First Live had to continue to pay for the two coordinators that were hired around ACES. So that was something we've been able to do, as well as continue to have Emily on board to continue to work. She's been continuing to help us in terms of the management of our community of care hub that we created. Um, in that hub, we were able to create a partnership with another CBO that is continuing to provide funding support to that hub activity. Um, and then lastly, I would say by embedding the structures and processes within each agency, it's now part of the fabric of those agencies. So it's not something that they have to think about. It's there. They utilize the you know, technology to continue to move those resources, referrals to help me grow. And it's pretty seamless. That um, cost for that, the maintenance is pretty minimal. Um, so once you have the node in place, you're, get, you're good to go. Barbara? I thought you put that so well, Wanda. It's really become a fabric of our community experience here. It's really seamless at this point. It's very much autopilot to continue the work that we started. And I think one of the things that was so powerful is we were utilizing existing community resources. We were just really defining that linkage and, again, a different way of practicing medicine that was implemented as well, not to minimize that part of it. Uh, So we've continued all that, and we have grown in some ways, too, which has been exciting. Uh, We've started actually now doing the whole family wellness model all the way up to 12 years of age, uh, which has been really interesting. And I'm going to say what I've noticed with that is that parents of slightly older kids uh, have some more insights into into terms of how their own ACEs score is impacting their parenting. I think when the children were younger, that link was not as obvious. We also are providing resiliency support for children now from 6 to 18 as well. And I'm going to say what's been most uh, popular among my families has been linking kids to sports teams. That's been super important. And I'm going to say the groups that have jumped on that the most have been kids who are battling weight, kids who are battling loneliness, especially after the pandemic, especially teenagers with anxiety and depression. So it's been a really nice adjunct uh, to kind of the more traditional approaches uh, to that. We have also partnered with UCSF. They got this amazing grant that was designed to further their resiliency clinic model to community clinics like ourselves. And Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh site is going to be one of the places where that's going to be implemented, as well as two other La Clinica sites in Alameda, led by the amazing Dr. Lynn Rosen and the amazing Dr. Kathy Chen. So that's super exciting. And the other thing that I'm actually really excited about as well is we've been doing adult ACEs screening through our parental screening programs. But now Jeanette Leon, who's one of our nurse practitioners, has started doing ACEs screening as part of their diabetes groups. And that has also been extremely impactful. So, um, yeah, exciting, and I feel like the seed that we started with this uh, program is really blossoming in interesting ways. What would you consider the critical success factors that other organizations um, who are listening today and who will be listening to the podcast in the future should be aware of as they consider this type of partnership? To kind of summarize some of what Wanda and Barbara shared earlier around some of our biggest overall lessons that we learned were really some of the kind of big three were around understanding differences across clinic sites and our systems, 
understanding our stakeholders at all levels, and establishing our open communication channels. We found that having those open lines of communication between all three of our organizations and a shared commitment to making sure we are working in close partnership was certainly a critical success factor that we'd recommend folks consider in similar projects. Folks committed time to coordinate as necessary across our systems to build our collective success, and we had that existing deep willingness to be in this work together. We found that those relational foundations allowed us to foster that culture change that we've talked about around how our community thinks, talks about ACEs, toxic stress, and resilience, including how we approach supporting families. That in itself was a huge takeaway. We learned and we promoted the idea that everyone can benefit from resiliency supports and stress mitigation strategies. This whole movement across the state and you know, the world ultimately isn't only about trauma-informed care that responds to or heals trauma after it happens. It's about preventing adverse childhood experiences and traumas from occurring in the first place. So families can get referred to services like HMG, no matter an ACE score of zero or 10. This work is prevention, moving upstream, early intervention, and taking that cross-generational approach uh, where we can prevent challenges early for kids by also supporting their families. And every single one of us can benefit from support around basic needs, healthy development, stress mitigation, whether or not we're specifically labeled at risk. Alongside that core philosophy shift, we'd recommend folks, um, of course, consider the ways in which they can leverage both new technology and existing resource and referral infrastructure that may facilitate their work. The smart phrase in the service point node made it easier for providers and care coordinators to access a closed loop process. And in order to make that happen, we needed partners with willingness and tech capabilities and willingness to engage in conversation about data exchange, focus staff time on information technology needs, and then, of course, we had that robust, organized two-on-one database of resources and the existing Help Me Grow system infrastructure going strong. So there were workflows in place that we could modify and merge and integrate effectively. Um, one kind of unavoidable success factor, of course, is funding. Um, we recommend that folks interested in pursuing similar projects stay tuned to things like CalAIM and other related initiatives that uh, may offer opportunities to grow these types of efforts. We've been able to sustain certain aspects of our work wonderfully and for you know the, the work and the, the movement in its entirety to continue to truly grow and thrive and scale up this genre of work will likely need sustained support from state initiatives like CalAIM, uh, like the Child and Youth Behavioral Health Initiative, the California Accountable Communities for Health Initiative, and others. So you might keep an eye out for things like hiring under the new community health worker benefit, um, and definitely keep an eye out for folks in your community who may have done some of the heavy lifting already so you can coordinate efforts in future funding, because we all know it's always better to tap into existing models and infrastructures, uh, both lo locally and statewide, rather than recreating the wheel. And then I'd love to conclude by also mentioning uh, and inviting listeners, particularly who are in Contra Costa, to join our Contra Costa Network of Care online hub, which is a space where providers can come together to learn, share, and collaborate around their implementation of trauma-informed healing-centered principles and practices. You can find the hub at contracostanetworkofcare.org, and you simply click on the Join the Network at the top right-hand corner to access the internal resources. And it is a moderated space, so when you request to join, you can you know, mention that you heard about us via this podcast and sort of how you got connected to us. We would love to stay in touch.
Great. Thank you. I love that uh, call to action ending. Um, any of the team have anything that they would like to add to that before we ask if there are any questions from the audience? I have maybe one small comment in that maybe this is a slightly negative comment just to warn everybody up front is that, you know, we're talking about doing the parental ACEs screening and maybe ACEs screening in general. And I'm going to say of ways to do ACEs screening, it is a little problematic in one way having parental parents filling out ACEs screeners. And the reason for that is that there's a certain amount of judgment, I think, that parents feel as they're filling out these things. Like, if I fill this out and there's a really high ACEs score, how are people going to view me? Or is that going to impact my ability to even hold on to my children? So it's a little bit of a more charged situation. I'm going to say probably the our ACEs scores that we're getting from our parents, I'm guessing are lower than what they truly were. I want to make the argument that that actually doesn't matter because the discussion around ACEs was the same. No matter what that ACEs score was, the offering of resources was the same, no matter what that ACEs score was. And I think that realization, too, that the conversation is more than just a one-of uh, situation and many times parents would call me after visits or follow up that discussion at the next time they were there within the clinic. So just to put that out there, I think there's a lot of emphasis sometimes on the actual ACEs score, and I'm wondering sometimes that may not be totally accurate in terms of reality. If I can just follow up to that, I, and I think that's right. Like the beauty of it is that's part of that culture shift, not just within the clinic, but in the community. And I think um, it, it exemplifies like the effectiveness of those conversations that Barbara's having as a physician with this family, because they are calling back. They are coming back to the table later in other meeting, in other, you know, appointments and still having that discussion willingly. And so I think it helps to also shift the narrative that, because of my parenting style, because of my parenting skills, this is, you know, how it's affecting my child, but that there's so much more, it's a lot more complicated, it's, it's complex, and it's not just my child that needs support, maybe I need support too. Um, so really looking at that, and yet here we are, right, and yet we are resilient. And so finding the ways um, to elevate parents' um, strengths, and then letting them know it's, it is hard, and that's okay, and you made it, and there's still services and resources available for you. I'd also add that we also really heard strongly that people were also feeling like they couldn't do it alone. Oftentimes people, providers, other organizations felt alone in the work. And so we really tried to ban around creating a, a system of care that held all of us. And that was really about bringing people together to say it together, we can do this work. We may not be able to do it alone, but if we put all of our resources and expertise and energy around this together, we can create a system that we're really proud of. That was beautiful. Beautiful way to end, um, Wanda. Thank you. Does anyone in the audience have any questions? Um, Carla just put one in the chat. How do you navigate the challenges in finding mental health resources when there are limited mental health providers and long waiting lists? Yeah, that's that's definitely popped up in my mind as well, Carla. I, I can jump in there a bit. I will say our clinic is rather blessed that we have two therapists as part of our integrative behavioral health program. Um, and I know that many clinics don't have that uh, level of access. 
But having said that, I think one thing that is super important to remember is that of those stress mitigation strategies, and there's seven of them, mental health is just one of those. And yes, it is critically important in several cases, but I'm going to say a fair number of our families either didn't feel like they needed mental health support or did not want mental health support, but were open to a lot of the other stress mitigation strategies and uh, jumped into those. I will say of the families that filled out that resiliency form that we talked about, about 60% requested resiliency support, which is really interesting that we didn't even think about uh, resiliency referrals as being a thing before this project, and about 60% of families wanted it. So that's what I'll say. I mean, I I agree. I wish we had more mental health uh, access for sure, but there are other strategies that we can use as well. Thank you. Amy? Um, I, too, have a question for Dr. Patello. I was wondering, in listening to the symptoms from ACEs for toddlers, I did find myself thinking about the differentials in some of those manifestations and how that could lead you to their disease states, other conditions, other other diagnoses. And I'm just wondering how you are able to pick apart this is versus this is a, a different medical condition versus this is diff- a different behavioral health condition you know, and kind of pick that apart in in a toddler, essentially. So I don't know if you are able to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to say that's, I don't want to say one of my favorite parts of medicine, but it's being the detective, I guess, is that every time we look at a child, the differential is pretty broad. What I want to make the point of is that previously, ACEs-associated health condition was not even on that differential, and now it is. So I want to say there's that that shift. I completely 1,000% agree with you that if you have a child with developmental delay, it should not be your reflex to say, yep, this is clearly all stress. No, it could be autism, and it could be a genetic cause of that autism. But I think that having stress on the differential is super important. I will say just one, hopefully not too tangential, (laughs) thing, which is about ADHD, Um, Previously, and ADHD is a fairly common thing, right? We would treat those with stimulants, and I'm going to say I still treat them with stimulants, a very effective treatment for ADHD, but there's now increasing data to suggest that a lot of kids with ADHD do have a history of trauma and that alpha-2 agonists may actually work better than stimulants. So especially for those children where stimulants aren't working, they have a a history of trauma, kind of shifting that a little bit and saying, hmm, maybe we should really be thinking about the ADHD through the lens of trauma will actually improve therapy. But I agree. I think, as I said, it's one of the things I love about medicine is that detective part of it. Um, And only to make the point that it doesn't mean it's the only thing on the differential, but at least now it's included on that differential. Thank you. And we have another question in the chat um, related to Carla's question. Um, I think it's just around finding the mental health uh, support and resources related to bilingual and bicultural providers um, and either further support specifically for children. It's a huge gap in our health centers and our communities. And I'd love to, to speak to those sort of two questions from the chat around navigating the challenges, finding mental health resources, and particularly for bilingual and bicultural providers and specifically supporting children. I think that 
again, I want to just remind folks that, you know, part of what we're asking the community to do, and I think there's a huge movement around in Contra Costa, is to move toward this prevention mindset that sometimes when we're talking, if we're talking about a mental health intervention, we're too late. Like, not like that people can't change because obviously (laughs) healing happens. Therapy is important. Those things, absolutely, you know, there's a huge deficit in our mental health system right now that's due to so many factors. And what we're asking folks to think about is moving towards a a really a kind of a public health framework and prevention framework where we're thinking about folks' social context more broadly rather than looking at, you know, the manifestation of a mental illness we're also thinking about the background of, of what's happened to this person. A lot of you have probably heard the, you know, the big reframing from Dr. Bruce Perry and, and Oprah Winfrey's book of instead of asking what's wrong with you, what are you sick with, how do we fix this, we say what's happened to you, what's gotten to you to this point in your life. And as Barbara mentioned, that we understand now it's not just about treating someone in the clinic's four walls, but finding the broader ways that we can systemically change and see our responsibility as addressing things like racism and those broader social factors that cause the the stressors for parents that then rub off onto children. So really moving to that kind of prevention and, and broader approach beyond only the mental health kind of intervention down the road. Liliana, were you about to jump in there? Yeah, just really briefly, because I think this question comes up a lot and it's a real concern, especially for health physicians or health providers. Um, And it's a reality, like I think just being honest and transparent about that, it is a reality that there are lack a lack of services and often those, especially us, our immigrant community, uh, like really grows and is diverse a need for some very specific language services and things like that, that's a real need. And so I think one thing that comes to mind in in answering the question is part of this work helps us to elevate those gaps. And that's why it's even more important to be able to connect with collaboratives like Aliados and, and other advocate groups where we can be able to really like think about how do we come together and talk about then policy changes and advocating for funding. Um, at a real practical level, one thing that I think really supports this work is being able to partner with folks like our Help Me Grow 211 through the Crisis Center, because a lot of times there are community services that have very specific niche services within their programming that it really takes someone who can really dig through those, you know, resource databases to then be able to say, okay, this, here's the service for that parent, right? And that's where it really builds that resource connection muscle for a health clinic. The health clinic may not have the capacity to like really sit there and dig through and sift through all that, but a care coordinator like a Help Me Grow care coordinator can do that. And, and sometimes there are, um, not always, but for the most part, we're able to, you know, figure that out. And then I think the third piece I'll highlight is that's where this this concept of trauma-informed care really is key because it helps us to broaden our understanding of what mental health means and what mental health services could look like. And it isn't always a clinical treatment, you know, pathway. Um, Mental health can be supported and um, really addressed, concerns can be addressed with so many other preventative, um, uh, you know, resources like building community, like building those uh, protective factors for families. Um, And knowing that mental health, right, carries a lot of stigma in many communities too. And so it may not always be the immediate like, hey, you need a mental health referral, (laughs) talk to a therapist, but 
if you invite me to a parent support group, I might be more willing and I will be feel much better about that. Or maybe there's a mommy and me play group that I didn't really think about could help me connect better with my child in a way that feels more neutral to me. Um, or just physical activity, right? Barbara talked about all the different um, stress busters that could support that mental health, even if even if mental health is just one aspect of that. All the other ones just kind of seamlessly can, are interconnected. And so um, I think just those three things to think about, too. Mm-hmm. And it's complicated. It's 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 a complex network of services. But I think uh, and I think it's 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 a both. It helps us elevate gaps and it also helps us to consider how to broaden our definition of that. Thanks. Those are really helpful. I wanted to jump in along exactly with what Emily and Liliana were saying. I just wanted to tell you about a case in a couple of sentences. This is an adolescent girl, so I know it's a little bit out of the first five uh, group. But having said that, this was an adolescent girl who had been in therapy for a long time, was on SSRIs, really struggling with anxiety and depression. got her linked to a soccer team. And her world turned around. She was able to come off her medications. She was able to stop therapy. She seems great, really connected with her community. So I think it's super important to really elevate these other factors, too. So just to add that. I love that. I think we have one last question. Um, How do you incorporate the ASQ and ASQSE into the ACEs screening and referral process? We don't use the ASQSE, but we do the regular ASQs, um, and we do those at the routine. Actually, we may do them slightly more than than routine, but we do it at 9, 18, 24, and 30 months, Um, and then we do the ACEs screening at 12 months and then yearly after that, and we actually have packets of forms that are at the front desk that are just handed out to families. So it's all very seamless. And I think it's one of the powers of the ACEs screening that it is in the midst of all these other forms. It's kind of anonymous. It's ho-hum. We give it to everybody. So there's nothing that flags it as, yep, you really need this ACEs screen. So um, that's how how we do it. Great. Any other questions from the audience? No question. Uh, I really appreciate your intergenerational approach, and I appreciate you sharing um, how parents bond with the ACEs screeners. And I'm wondering if providers have requested, like, uh, recurring training or support um, to approach the ACEs screening um, for parents. They have not asked for additional support. Perhaps that's something that would be lovely to offer. I will (laughs) throw that out there. Um, I think that for the providers that are doing ACEs screening, we each come up up with our own, I was going to say lyrics, that's not the the right word, but our own pattern of of how we talk about ACEs, how we interact with families, uh, our own narratives, I guess. Uh, And I think that's also true uh, with with doing the parental ACEs screening as well. I think there are some kind of scripts that are available through the ACEs Aware Initiative and and other resources that kind of say, like, here's how you can talk about it, that folks can either memorize or adapt. Um, And I I mean, I do remember you mentioning, Barbara, that um, in general, that you were finding it was important to, like, have, uh, like, holders of knowledge and, like, knowledge documented so that with 
turnover that the the understanding and the knowledge of how to talk about ACEs carried over beyond any individual person. So I do remember during the grant, La Clinica was, um, you were documenting some of like how you were approaching it. You were thinking about, okay, like we might need to like retrain the front desk a bit more and things like that. So there definitely, you know, there was conversation about like, we keep it going beyond any like individual champion so that it's like embedded. And it sounds like it's become, like you said, incredibly embedded in just how the clinic does business now. Yes, that's true. We probably have not done as good a job as we could have, to be honest. And now I'm thinking we should really do, be doing this more formally to really get those scripts written. Um, and again, I think we've become a bit complacent perhaps because it's become a little bit routine within our clinic. Um, but yeah, I do think that's an important point to make it a little bit more scripted um, going forward. Yeah. And I would add that one of the things we did in this grant was, I think we talked earlier about was, really having specific training for specific entities within the work. And one of them was with the front staff that was at the clinics with um, Transform providing, you know, some technical assistance for us. So we really wanted to attend to how people were communicating, how people were thinking about um, and stress and how they were communicating it to uh, per- the people we serve, because that was important to us. Uh, we wanted to really do that to emphasize that we were destigmatizing this, this kind of black hole of people thinking like, what is this stuff? And how, what do you mean I have ACEs? We really wanted to make sure that families had an experience that was positive rather than um, feeling they were being blamed in the process. So we really did a lot of work around that area. And I I think it's, it showed up. I, I want to highlight too the work that was done with the medical assistants too, who are really the people kind of on the front line answering a lot of those mm-hmm. questions. I do want to say one final thing too, which is there were times that there were, extremely negative responses to the ACEs screening. I don't want to pretend that it was all roses here. Um, And there was one family that dramatically ripped it up and threw it down the hall. So those situations happen. I'm going to say that those families actually with conversation were the ones that were most likely to come back and ask more questions compared to the ones that were really under the radar and just answered it zero, zero. Um, but so, yeah, sometimes those dramatically negative responses actually lead to really meaningful conversations. I love how you um, described the concept of trying to make it something that's consistent, that will continue on, even if there is staff turnover. But I also love the way you described that, Barbara, as um, lyrics of it rather than just a script, because I do think that there is a, a lyrical nature to all of it. Thank you so much. I know we're at time. Um, we so appreciate you taking the time to share your experiences with us and all the things that you learned throughout this work. Of course, appreciate the work that you do every day to help our communities. Thank you, and keep on keeping up with the great work. And thank you all so much at Aliados Health for having us. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thank you again to you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you have suggested topics for future episodes, please email them to m-p-e-r-r-e-y at aliadoshealth.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye for now. Till next time on the QI Chatroom.